Well, on these uh, Sunday evenings, uh, when we have a celebration of the Reformation Day, we very often have a lecture or a kind of semi-preaching lecture by guests. We don't have any, any guests this year, so you're left with the old man, and, uh, and I'll do my best to lecture you as long as you're prepared to sit there. Uh, you, you weren't going anywhere anyway, so... I have no problem keeping you. Now, I'm going to be very brief this evening. If you believe that, you'll believe anything. Uh, We're looking at Romans chapter 12 and verse 6. Let me read it to you straight from the Greek, though I'll read it in English. Uh, Those, the prophecy, prophecy uh, must be done... uh, in proportion to the faith, in proportion to the faith. I'm going to pick that up in a few minutes. Now, this is the day we celebrate the great work of God called the Reformation. And at the forefront stands this giant of a man, Martin Luther. This morning we spoke about sola fide, faith alone, Uh, Luther's insight that Christ Alone, faith alone in Christ alone is the basis for our salvation. Uh, That view of Luther's has been accepted by at least one pope, probably the greatest in our lifetime, Benedict XVI, who agreed that Luther was right to make the point that when it says faith, it means faith alone. I don't think he would agree with everything Luther said beyond that, but. He does agree with that point. For Luther and the Reformed, faith alone in Christ alone is the sole basis for salvation. The word faith, as we saw this morning, pertains to the grace, that givenness by God, by which we receive and rest on Christ alone for our salvation. So that was sola fide. We looked at that this morning. This evening we turn to look at analogy. Analogy, fide, or the regular fide, or the rule of faith, or the analogy of faith, where the faith that's described here in this passage we just read from Romans 12, the faith, the, the definite article is used, is a reference not to my faith, not to your faith, not to how much we believe or how little we believe or how long we've believed, rather it refers to something outside of us, outside of ourselves. It's telling them that those who prophesy, and by the way, it doesn't mention the prophets, so there's no reference to the, the, the individual prophet's faith, the amount of his faith or her faith. Prophecy is the act of pro- proclaiming the Word of God. Uh, those who proclaim the Word of God are to discharge their ministry in its teaching, and they are to do it in proportion to what uh, Charles Hodge calls the rule or the test or the canon, the norm of faith, the faith, objective, something objective, outside of ourselves. And Calvin explains that a prophet, as is indicated here, 
is someone who proclaims the Word of God. We're not talking here about prediction. We're talking about the normal work of a prophet in the Old Testament and the normal work of a preacher in the New Testament, which is to proclaim the Word of God. At the beginning of the church, there were no written scriptures, and so the prophets were inspired directly by God in what they said. The prophet would speak under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Both men and women did that, as we read in, in the book of Acts, and as was prophesied in the Minor Prophets. That word could be a word of teaching, prediction, or an, a direct, direct address to an individual within the group, like Ananias and Sapphira. But what they said, Paul is saying, what they said then has to be tested by the faith. That is that doctrine that is believed by the church. In other words, the test is the church itself and what the church believes. We think of the use of the very same expression in Jude verse 3, the faith, the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. But since the completion of the canon, that is, since the Bible as we know it, was complete. Calvin goes on to say this, it is the right understanding of the Scripture, this is prophecy, the right understanding of Scripture, and the particular or peculiar faculty for explaining it. In other words, prophecy is now in the church, in the preaching office of the church. Calvin says those who preach are to conform their prophecies, their preaching, to the rule of faith, the analogy fide, lest they should deviate from the rule, the canon, the line. Now, you'll notice in modern translations that this is not as obvious when you're reading the text, though the, the position that we're going to deal with this evening is the majority position in the life of the church. In most of the the 2,000 years the church has been around. The change from the faith to the person who's speaking's faith takes place after the Enlightenment. With the Enlightenment, the so-called Enlightenment, things about the Scriptures take a subjective turn. Instead of talking about the faith as something outside that is a a test of what I'm saying, it becomes my faith. So I I have to say what what I believe, what what is suitable to what I believe. It's, It's something subjective and in me rather than outside of me by which you can test me. Uh, and so a biblical interpretation also in the, especially the 19th century, took a, a, a rationalistic turn. How do you interpret the Bible? Well, in many places even today, how, this is how we interpret the Bible. We, we look for the author's intent. What did the author, that is the human author, intend to say? Now, there's a, quite a call order. You have to know quite a lot about the author uh, to be able to know what was in his mind when he wrote what he wrote. But that's, that is the procedure in most theological colleges in our day. Uh, you look for the authorial intent. You explore the, glamour, the grammar. 
And then you, in your own individual reason, come to a conclusion about what the text means. And I don't think that's a very safe way to come to a conclusion about what the text means. And nothing could have been further from the received Catholic and Reformed view of interpreting Scripture at the time of the Reformation. The Reformation was, among other things, an act of retrieval, uh, going back to the sources, first of all to Holy Scripture itself, then to the early church fathers who carried on uh, many of the reading habits using the interpretive tools of Jesus and the apostles in the reading of Scripture in the light of Scripture. A recognition that the church has something much richer and fuller in Scripture itself than is on offer today. That every text they saw has a deeper, fuller meaning than we give it credit for. And that these readings of Scripture, the reading of every text of Scripture, has guardrails and direction signs. And it's this that we call the rule of faith or the analogy of faith. The Reformers, like the Fathers and the best of the medievals, held that there was more in the text of Scripture than the bare words and grammar suggest. They also held that Scripture does not need anything outside of itself to interpret its meaning. Scripture should interpret Scripture. And like the church, Catholic and Reformed, Luther saw the basis of understanding the Bible in the Bible itself. Luther argued that the Bible had its own catechism, which little children could learn, that our own children would do with learning. There must be, I would think, the basics of what we teach our children from the earliest days. And the Bible's catechism consists of three parts, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Our Father. The Ten Commandments will teach you how to love. The Apostles' Creed will tell you and teach you what to believe. And the Our Father will tell you what to hope for in your Christian life. Here's what Martin Luther wrote. For those who preach the word, Paul prescribes this limit. He's talking about our text. This limit. If anyone is a preacher and has the office of teaching, other, teaching others what the word is, let him above all see to it that he preach nothing which is not in accord with the faith. Whatever is taught, whatever is heard, should fit with the faith. And yet when Paul says preaching should be analogous with the faith, he does not bind the mouth of the Holy Spirit. But know this, if the Holy Spirit makes you a prophet, then he will not lead you off into the woods, but will teach you what agrees with the faith in Christ. Theodore Beza, 
One of Calvin's successes refers to the axioms, the trustworthy sayings in and of themselves, the axioms of the Christian faith that have been included in the creed that we call the apostles. That's how he describes it. And was written at the very beginning of the gospel as a summary of the gospel. And so is deservedly called the norm and the rule of faith by one of the early church fathers, Tertullian. The rule of faith and the analogy of faith, the analogy of faith. Now, there's a book that you may want to grab to kind of discover or explore more about this. It's written by Todd Haynes called Martin Luther and the Rule of Faith. And he shows in that book how Scripture has its own catechism, which we've spoken about, how it serves its own as its own interpretive guide. This serves as an objective rule of faith, which is far more preferable to a subjective one, measured by the gifted individual, that is, by the preacher looking for his take on the passage. Now, some today believe in generating or discovering what the big idea in a text is. Some preaching strategies, and some of you in this room will have been taught this preaching strategy, and I'm just about to sink it gently with a howitzer. In other words, think about this for a moment. You are being encouraged to use your reason that may be sanctified reason or unsanctified reason, depending on which one of you I'm talking to at any given moment. But you are being asked to use your reason to identify what is the big idea in a particular text. Does that not strike you as arrogance above your pay grade? For it should. Very often these big ideas are artificial, superficial, arbitrary. Richard Muller, whose name you should know, especially those of you who are at seminary, and whose works you should most definitely have, defined the analogy of faith more specifically. He says it means to read the Bible through the lens of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. What fits the faith of the Catechism is from God. What doesn't fit is not from God. To these, together these three teach Christians Christianities, love and faith and hope. And you can find this practice in the later Reformed Orthodox Thomas Watson. In his works, he divides them into these three parts. Uh, William Perkins does the same, and Vitzius, Herman Vitzius does the same, to name but a few. Charles Hodge, by the way, is way behind me here. He's, he's on the ball. He's not always on the ball, but he's on the ball because he agrees with me this evening uh, on, on that text that we've just read together. These three, then, are the true and genuine sense of all Scripture, he says. All that Scripture has is simply encompassed by the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And we should use the Bible's own catechism 
Scripture to understand the inner logic of Scripture. I think that's a pretty fundamental thing to do. Uh, One of the issues here is that our regenerate, our born-again reason must be subordinate to the faith that has been revealed and believed by the church if we are going to understand the Bible itself. Here's how a guy with quite good qualifications, St. Augustine, puts it. Receive, my children, the rule of faith, which is called the symbol or the creed. And when you've received it, write it in your heart. Be daily saying it to yourself. He's just talking about one of these three, the, the creed. Before you sleep, before you go out, arm yourself with the creed. The creed no man writes so that it may be able to be read, but for rehearsal of it, happily, unless we forget it and obliterate the care that delivered this to your mind and your memory. The rule of faith, he calls it. Tertullian puts it like this. The rule of faith, the regular fide, indeed is altogether one, alone, immovable, and irreformable, the rule to wit of believing in one God, omnipotent, the creator of the universe, his son, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised again the third day from the dead, received into the heavens, sitting now at the right hand of the Father, destined to come to judge the quake and the dead through the resurrection of the flesh as well. He's quoting from the Apostles' Creed. A Genevan Confession of 1536 First, we affirm that we desire to follow Scripture alone as the rule of faith and religion, without mixing with it any other thing which might be devised by the opinion of men apart from the Word of God, and without wishing to accept for our spiritual government any other doctrine than that which is conveyed to us by the same Word, without addition or diminution according to the command of our Lord. In other words, all of Scripture must be brought to the bar of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, by the way, which is rich in biblical, it's telling you the history of redemption, compacted and directly drawn from Scripture, which is why I started with First Peter this evening. And we must use these for our own Christian devotion. Take the Ten Commandments, for example. Uh, the first commandment, the, the, the Ten Commandments divide into two parts. Uh, there are <clears throat> we learn in them both to love God and to love our neighbor. So we start with God. God wants our affections, our thoughts, our words, our deed. Is he for, in the forefront of those? We're to love our neighbor by honoring them, giving them their place, their status, recognizing their their maturity, their age, giving and protecting life, protecting, preserving their body, their family, their possessions. The Ten Commandments of a civil use in his restraining evil and in punishing 
evildoers. Then there's the theological use of the Ten Commandments. We looked at that this morning, the Ten Commandments, when they're held up before me as as the statement of God's righteousness condemns me, breaks me. I read it so that I might know that from which I need to be saved. I need to read it in a sense to examine my own life and behavior and attitudes. And then the third use is in the living of the Christian life. The Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer are aids and guides to the Christian, and the Ten Commandments particularly give us guides to how to live for God and please Him in the world. The Apostles' Creed is the faith compressed into a small span, a faith that gives us what we lack, what kind of God we have, what has He done on our behalf. The Creed describes three divine persons and three divine works. It describes the whole Trinity inseparably working, inseparably operating for your salvation and mine. You can look at the Apostles' Creed and see couplets of the Father and creation, the Son and redemption, the Spirit and sanctification. The Holy Spirit makes the church. The Holy Spirit forgives sins. The Holy Spirit will bring about the resurrection of the dead. And then thirdly, there's the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, which teaches us how to pray. There's a kind of temporal and eternal aspect. In terms of eternity, in terms of our relationship with God, we seek God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. Those are our highest goods. Those are the goods that are supreme to every other good that we would want in our lives. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. If we seek those things, the things that are above, the things that are God's, it will put everything else into place. But we're also to pray for temporal things, for our bodily needs, for the forgiveness of our sins, for protection from evil, and for the grace to live a holy life. Now, there are different ways of seeing these three elements then as a catechism used in Scripture. Um, For example, let me find this that I copied this morning. The the Holy Spirit sanctifies and gives life through three acts. He makes the church, he forgives sins, he resurrects the dead. The church is Christ's little flock gathered by the Holy Spirit. Luther understood the words, the communion of the saints, to be a clarifying gloss for the words, the Holy Catholic Church. In case anybody thought that was a building, the communion of saints takes us further and shows us it's not a building, it's the people. If we ask where do Christians gather, we answer, Luther writes, not in some house, but in the word, I believe. 
united in one faith and one baptism. These saints, despite appearances, are holy because God gives them His holiness. That the church remains, that is, that there's still a church 2,000 years after Jesus, is an article of faith only God's power makes possible. By the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the church proclaims God's Word, birthing new Christians, nurturing them in God's forgiveness and in God's life. The Christian church is your mother. She births you through the Word and carries you, writes Luther. Baptism, communion, absolution are signs of God's presence. But other signs are possible, but God ordained these signs. The resurrection of the body is perhaps the most difficult of the Holy Spirit's works to understand. But nonetheless, we cling to it in faith. It is the faith that is believed by the church. And if you take these three elements of our churchly catechism and you utilize the teaching that they give you, you will be able to handle rightly the word of truth. I told you I'd be short, and I'm done. And uh, if you have any questions, maybe we'll have a question time one, and you can ask me anything about anything. But the elders have got to allow me to do it because they're scared I might say something out of order. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given your word to us and that your word is truth. We thank you that you've given to us these three devices that you've placed in our hands, the Ten Commandments that teach us how to love you and to love other people. The Apostles' Creed that teaches us the gospel. We think of Abraham there uh, with Isaac. And right there we see the resurrection foreshadowed in that story. We find the, the sacrificial lamb appearing right there in that story. The Apostles' Creed helps us understand what's going on in that story how it points us to Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we offer our prayers to you, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you would be glorified and that you would lead us, Lord, away from temptation into the path of obedience. We ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.